Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Kevin shares with us his path from a top consulting firm in Germany to helping run a startup accelerator in Shanghai. Learn why he made the jump to China, the differences in venture capital and startup space in China compared to the U.S., what his plans are for the future, and the realities now with COVID-19 in Shanghai. Enjoy. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me, man. So it'd be awesome if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Yeah, sure. So I started studying in Germany at the University of Mannheim. Uh, what I studied there was business administration. And during my studies, I always positioned myself very broadly. So I was a total generalist. You know, I looked into a law firm, into startup acceleration, into a startup into SME consulting in India. And so it was all over the place, but for me that was very much fun and I liked it. Um, and after my studies, I had a quick um, placement at Rocket Internet for three months in Sydney. Before then I transitioned into uh, strategy consulting at Roland Berger for th approximately three years. Um, but the last half year of it, I was already focused on my own uh, startup accelerator or funding accelerator, as we called it in Berlin, mm -hmm. where we were getting uh, pre-seed, very early stage startups in touch with the right investors, VCs and angels, um, before then making the big move from Europe to uh, China, Shanghai, where now uh, I'm in charge of the accelerator. Um, it's called, uh, so the company is called Exnote. Um, and we do three things. One is space, like WeWork, for example. The other thing is corporate innovation. So like, for example, uh, McKinsey Digital would do, focused purely on innovation in China. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is acceleration business. And that's what I'm uh, in charge of. The acceleration business? What do you mean by that? Exactly. So this, if, uh, with the acceleration business, what we do is uh, we do startup acceleration, mm -hmm. helping startups from outside of China get into China and mm -hmm. gain traction in China. And then there's multiple business models, uh, how we monetize that. And are most of your investments coming out of um, US, Europe? Where, who, what companies are coming to you guys for help for that, typically? Um, mostly Asia and Europe. So with the U.S., uh, historically, we have done very little, although it's still a spot on my map that I want to, uh, you know, engage more with in the future. Great. So let's start back kind of 
in your university days. And mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about um, why you went there, what your thought process was as you were going through. You said you kept everything very broad as a generalist. Was that because you figured it didn't matter to specialize or you just found it, in- you said you found it interesting, it was fun for you. So mm-hmm. what kind of eventually, you know, why did you take the first, you said the first role out of school was uh, Rocket Internet? Exactly. And that was, but did you have internships during your four years? Is that traditional in, in, in Germany to have some, some work experience before you graduate? Yeah, so uh, the way it usually works in Germany is you, um, you know, during your studies, you develop a vision for where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So you do one or two or three internships there and then you, you know, start as a full-time in that role. Uh, for me, I always knew going into university, I always knew I wanted to uh, start my own business eventually. And um, so I figured the best way to learn as much as possible about business is to look into a lot of different companies from a lot of different industries. So I never started business administration studies and were like, okay, I need to get into investment banking or I need to end up in private equity. Was always the goal was to start a business, to change the world, and to truly have an impact. Um, and so I, so I did a lot of different things. I started uh, interning at a, a small startup that was probably one of the uh, internships where I learned the most. Then I worked for accelerators. Then I looked into a, a magic circle law firm. I was at the Federal Bank of Germany, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, until then the end of my studies approached and i realized oh actually you learned a lot of a lot of things during your studies but it still feels super theoretical like most of the things you learned in accounting or in controlling or in finance uh, you you're not really certain how to apply them right. and so i faced the decision between doing my master's degree like 90% of my uh, mates uh, study mates did or I figured I might try this thing called consulting that I got in touch with over the last couple of months, you know, because um, the University of Mannheim is one of the target universities uh, mm-hmm. for uh, consulting firms. So but they weren't were doing you, recruiting. Were, weren't you too late? Or was this in your junior year, like your third year? Or was this when you kind of decided I might do this? That was in my third year. Yeah. yeah okay. So you still had and, time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that was in my third year. And so I figured, okay, so either you do a master's degree or you do like a practical master, as I call it, mm-hmm. which would be consulting, you know, basically uh, trying different industries, trying different functions and just seeing how that works. And then I figured after a couple of years, you know, I can make an exit and become my own boss. Did you feel like um, there were enough engagements to actually get that broad of an education or were you on like long-term engagements? Or were you jumping around into enough industries where you felt like you got a pretty good experience? Yeah, so me, myself, I did 12 projects in the three years. Yeah. So that was quite a, quite a good and healthy amount of projects. Yeah, that's awesome. So, but what was this initial kind of when you first got out of school? So, so you, got, you got an internship in, was it at, at Roland Berger? No, nah, so the way it worked yeah. then was uh, once uh, I finished my studies, I applied to a number of consulting firms. I was totally clueless, so I didn't really do a lot of research. I, for example, I totally skipped applying for Bain because I thought these guys, they are too focused on 
you know they're too much into mathematical stuff and i don't i i kind of found their website boring so i figured you know i'm not going to apply there (laughs) (laughs) like financial engineering well it sounds like you were the typical you know uh arrogant 20 year old like i was (laughs) it was i was like to be honest i was pretty clueless and um that's of course also why i do right now the the things i do on the side right with my youtube channel and stuff yeah tell tell the listeners your youtube channel because it's pretty popular um i think you're pretty well known so why don't you tell people so they know where to check you out yeah sure so i have a youtube channel it's called management consulting insights and i started it during my last year at Rowan burger where i started with a couple of vlogs i recorded from a thing project in paris um, and people got interested, you know, and they started asking questions. How, you know, how does that work in consulting? What do you like about it? What do you hate about it? How do you get in there? And so I, you know, started recording videos about that. I'm publishing one every every week. So you can find me on uh, YouTube. If you type in Kevin John, I will pop up or Management Consulting Insights. Cool. Um, and how did people, yeah. um, how did your, how did your boss and your, your company deal with the fact that you were developing this personality? Did they not care because it wasn't big enough yet or when you started or was it something that they talked to you about? Yeah. At the beginning, of course it wasn't big enough, but, um, rather sooner than later people found out of course. And, um, to be honest, most of the people took it, uh, pretty well you know so most of them thought hey that's actually um that's actually quite interesting um and i would say ron burger is one of the more you know um, i would say they are more tolerant towards these kind of things mm-hmm. um that's great where whereas you have other firms where you know any publicity is very strictly forbidden and controlled so that was all right of course you Need, always need to it's it's a professional context so you need to be careful and you can't show office from inside and all these kind of things were they were uh, they like warning you by the end saying be careful and stuff like that or was it something where you were you know i, I yeah, go ahead. yeah th- so th- through the uh, uh, during uh, progression of time i had talks with people and i just asked for myself you know so what's allowed i don't want to make any mistakes yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think that went pretty well. Um, at the same time, of course, now that I'm totally free, I'm still even a bit more free to just say my opinion about anything. Right. Um, uh, but I would say, yeah, I, I was positively surprised of how well that went with, uh, with the firm. That's great. And so tell me a little bit about kind of, um, this initial so you, you were you were telling me about how you specifically kind of went to this this uh, how it works and, and i think yeah exactly so how so i did all these internships and mm-hmm. then i decided okay i'm going to go for a practical master's degree right. uh, which to me was consulting um and then i had um four months left until i uh, was supposed to start my uh, consulting job and i had a i had very good contacts to rocket internet and so I managed to uh, secure a, it's called, I think, Global Venture Development Program um, traineeship at Rocket mm-hmm. Internet. So I went to, you know, usually that's a thing that lasts, I think, nine months. And I said, sorry, guys, I'm not available for nine months, but I would love to help out for three months. Is that possible? 
And so that was possible. So I went to Sydney, which was like beautiful, you know, perfect work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, even though we worked hard, but, you know, on the weekends, we had a lot of fun. Um, and um, But that also then in that sense, it uh, strengthened my ambition to get into consulting because I realized that, um, you know, the startup world and especially the way Rocket Internet runs their ventures, it's super chaotic and it's super fast. And I really appreciated or I knew that it would be good to have a super strong understanding of all the fundamentals. And so I thought consulting must be a great place to learn that. I had a couple of good mentors at Rocket too, who you know worked at the top-tier strategy consulting firms because they do a lot of hiring from there. Yeah. And so that just reinforced my decision to work in strategy consulting for a couple of years. Yeah, and you were there for three years um, at Rollenberger. So why do you think you stayed so long? I think is that typical, or is it is it usually two years and then kind of the next step? I would say it's two to three years usually. Yeah. And um, for me, it was, um, I always planned on staying two to three years. And then, of course, you can't really plan it up until the last months. Like you get opportunities or you don't, and it takes a little bit longer. For me, the last half year, and that's also something where I'm uh, thankful to the firm. Um, I told them, hey, guys, you know, on the side, I'm, by the way, we're building this startup funding accelerator with a couple of friends can you guys uh, give me a sabbatical? You know, I would like to explore that opportunity. And uh, surprisingly enough, they told me, yes, you know, like that's possible, do your thing, you know, and if, if it works, then, um, you know, scale it. If not, then come back. <laughs> and uh, so- How did you yeah. approach that conversation? Cause that can be really touchy. Did you, was it with directly first with your manager saying, hey, I, I want to go do this startup. Can I come back in three months? Wouldn't most places just tell you like, no, <laughs> you can't do that. Like, is that, is that normal? Do you feel like that was a, just a, because you had developed strong relationships or why, why do you think that's, that was the case? Yeah, definitely because of, uh, because of good relationships. So I would, I was always trying to have good relationships with my mentors. Um, and always, yeah. Um, so it was really about keeping good relationships. Um, I had, uh, multiple mentors within the firm and uh, with these mentors I was very open you know about my ambitions and my future goals and I think that contributed to the fact that they then were also willing to give me this uh, this additional trust and so they kind of knew that it was just a, a few year two to three year stint and there wasn't any expectation that you would stay on and become a manager or an engagement manager and get promoted through with it. Is that, is that typical for the firms there? Is it like, you know, sometimes they go to business school. Sometimes people go, you know, what do people do coming out of? Um, I wouldn't say that I, you know, I wouldn't say that you should clearly communicate that you are going to, you know, leave the firm in two or three years. Right. Um, but what I did and what I was very open about is my big ambitions to start a company, build an empire. And so they knew that, okay, so either this guy is going for the partner track and then probably he realizes, oh, like that's not, uh, you know, that's not really building or going to get him an empire. And then mm -hmm. he jumps to something else or he's naturally just going to leave in a couple of years. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but basically being straightforward with your vision and your ambitions, that's something I think that's very beneficial. Why do you think you have such big ambitions to build an empire, as you say? What's, and what does an empire look like to you? Well, that's something I ask a lot of people. How do you develop ambitions? So to me, um, I haven't come up with a, with a perfect answer so far. I know what that about your parents? Lot. What about your parents? Yeah, uh, like uh, that's what I just wanted to say. I know it has a lot, of, a lot to do with how you grow up. And for me, certainly my mom played, played a big role talking about, uh, you know, managers of Fortune 500 companies when I was barely 15. Um, but I'm oftentimes asking myself if that's not too easy, you know, if, if there's not more. So that's, what did, what did your mom do that she was talking about these leaders? Uh, she was working at a law firm, um, but not in a, not in a, you know, um, she was working on the BD side of a law firm. So the services. Very cool. And your father was, uh, do you have a relationship with him? Are you close with him? Yes, yes. My father is a general practitioner, so doctor. Doctor, like my dad. So he was always the one pulling me back and saying, you know, Kevin, uh, things like family, love, all of that <laughs> is also important. And my mom was kind of the uh, the total opposite, saying, okay, like, go for the go for the career, go for the. That's cool. You know, yeah. That's cool. So you um, so you kind of have this ambition of an empire what's your vision of empire does it does it matter what the business is in is it more about the size and the number of people you employ is it the revenue is it the the profit what what do you view as kind of success kind of down the road Patrick ultimately I think it's about influence Mm -hmm. and so if it's whether it's a firm with 50 people where you do um, highly important deals for states and governments or whether it's a you know 50,000 people firm where you produce semiconductors or whatever the hell um, doesn't really matter. But I think this influence component is something that drives me now. Should it be beneficial for the world? Of course, like you want to, you want to build a legacy and you want to build a positive one. At least for me, that's the case. Um, So, so all of these, are factors that you know make me wake up in the morning and be extremely uh, extremely driven and ambitious i don't i'm not a kind of person that has problems coming to work or working on saturdays and sundays for me that's actually fun in my current stage of life mm-hmm. i'm sure it will change at some point you know once you grow older and maybe you know you get a little gray in the beard yeah. you <laughs> exactly you know Oh, you managed to grow a beard in the first place. Uh, so. <laughs> I have uh, I have three young kids, four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a one-year-old, and they're all stuck at home because of the coronavirus or the COVID-19, however you want to call it. Um, and so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's definitely priorities do change. Um, I, I do remember probably being closer to your age when I was uh, traveling the world, and I was at Rothschild in London partying yeah. like crazy having a great time and then uh, for the training and then coming back to new york it was it was a blast but i feel like it's interesting because things do shift um and they shift kind of slowly at first but then really fast especially once you get married and you have kids um if you want that if you want that so, so i know i know there's some people that have actually chosen very deliberately to be single and are happy with that decision one of our top members actually on the site so yeah. um 
I'd love to just hear a little bit more about where you feel like you're able to build the most influence and what form that takes. And just as people think about influence, can you talk a little bit about how you're not, you're obviously building that through YouTube and media and all that stuff and through what you're doing there. But then also, do you feel like your connections into the accelerator and startup community that you're building now um, is going to be what's kind of the true uh, driver towards that influence? Or do you feel like it's more you doing your own thing on the sides, like and just experimenting? Yeah, um, no, me doing my own stuff on the side is really just experimenting, as you already pointed out. So for me, that's nothing that I see, you know, as my long-term goal. I do think it's important to uh, build reach and following online. So I do think in today's world, that's, that's an asset, you know, to have 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people following you. Um, but that being said, um, the main thing I think is, you know, for me is interesting in terms of value generation uh, going forward is bridging the gaps, the knowledge gaps between China and the rest of the world. So um, it's like there's a, there's a huge wall, a huge information asymmetry between China and the rest of the world. And I see my mission in, you know, taking a hammer and poking small holes into that wall and then slowly increasing the holes. And so there's lots of potential there. Although many people think that, you know, China is opening up much more and, you know, free flow of goods and information. But the reality is the information asymmetry is still super high. And every day I stay longer in China, I realize now that I'm interacting, for example, with, you know, the Shanghai government or with other high-ranking Chinese government officials, I just realize what, what a different world that is hmm. and how much of potential there lies in connecting, for example, China and Europe or China and the U.S. more. And for me, the thing that I'm interested in is, you know, startups. So for me, it's about the startup ecosystem. Mm -hmm. and specifically focusing on building bridges for the startup ecosystems in China and the rest of the world. Can you talk to me a little bit about how the differences between like a Silicon Valley where I'm at right here and the, yep. the startup community in China? I'm super fascinated to hear if, if you have an opinion on what the main differences are. I mean, is it such that here where the VCs, like is, do VCs play a huge role in China or is it other is it other influencers or other like are there are there more accelerators do you know kind of the differences between both cultures yes so there's a couple of differences um, I would say the first one is just the sheer scale of resources I mean China just as a country is so much bigger so much more people so much more money to deploy uh, so that's the first difference secondly when, you say, when you say money to deploy, you mean just uh, invest, uh, just investments in general, just pure capital, like chasing these deals? Exactly, pure capital. Okay. I mean, yep. total amount of venture capital went down, obviously, over the last quarters. quarters. Yep. Um, however, um, however, the money in the system in general, and I think the, like, the reason why it went down is because it was just too hot. I mean, there was just... Uh, the VC scene in China is a very young one. They are not super experienced. Deals are 
pretty straightforward and you don't have you know different kinds of uh, contracts and uh, participation schemes as you have in in the in the US mm-hmm. um and so they still have a lot to learn and now it's the first time that kind of this uh, this market cooled down a little bit which i yeah, do yeah. think is healthy. which is needed which is needed yeah. exactly Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the one thing the sheer scale of resources. The second thing is obviously the role the government plays because here you have an authoritarian capitalism uh, as opposed to what we have in the West. So you need to always take the government into account, especially if you plan to build an empire. You know, um, if you don't plan to stay small and in a niche. Um, the third thing is the mindset of the typical Chinese consumer. The Chinese consumer is very open to giving away their privacy, their data. So they don't care whether you take their data as long as some benefits arise from that. Mm. So if you do a survey in, in Germany, you know, it's like 10% of people are willing to give away their data if they get some benefit from it. Here it's like, it's the majority, you know, people just don't care. Yeah. Or so, yeah. And so, um, so that's, um, so that's another thing. And then maybe the fourth thing to close with is based on these three factors, things like um, lean startup or things like design sprints mm-hmm. and methodologies that came from the West mm-hmm. and people try to adopt them in China, they usually don't work. Mm. Even things like, um, you know, in the West, you always say you need to pick a, like a niche. You need to pick one narrow vertical and conquer that one and then go on to the next one. Mm. Even things like that are not totally applicable. You have many cases of startups and companies here that go super broad in the beginning and manage to conquer multiple verticals at the same time and somehow find to, you know, manage to... Um, create synergies between those Mm. so it's a it's a very different uh, ecosystem yeah i wonder and so in terms of um accelerators and vc funds and are are they are there traditional funds like you have here in the u.s in terms of uh limited partners the lp gp structure are there similar things in china that are um you know where there's these massive vc funds with you know 10 billion uh, you know, equivalent of USD that go out and make, you know, 100 investments across, you know, SaaS software, for example. Is it similar in that sense? Yeah, I would uh, point out three main differences because, because the most things are similar, but some mm-hmm. things are different. So it's a little bit faster. So that means the, the general, you know, like the... Um, Duration of a fund will usually not be 10 years, but might be shorter, six, seven years. Okay. That's, that's, that's normal for uh, Chinese VC funds. Mm-hmm. Second thing is you, have, uh, you always have RMB funds and you have USD funds. Mm-hmm. And that's important to know for founders from abroad who seek to get funding is if the VC firm you're talking to only has an RMB fund, then it might actually be pretty difficult for them to give you funding because they need to go through a lot of legal loopholes um, to to give you that money. However, it's much easier if they have a USD fund. 
Interesting. Um, that's the they're, second thing. They kind of raise, they can raise in two denominations basically in their mm -hmm. currency. And it's helpful if you're, if you're an outsider kind of coming in. Okay. So th that's interesting. Okay. And then sorry, your last difference. Exactly. And then, and the, la the last difference is you have, um, if you talk to people at um, VC firms, some of them might be called, you know, uh, investment manager. Um, or so let's pick an investment manager, for example. In reality, they are not. In reality, they are probably on the associate level. Mm. But in China, talking about those roles, you, you can kind of always deduct uh, one position. So I have some, uh, I have some friends from startup founders who approach VC firms. And uh, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, Sorry, no, we, lost, we lost you for a second, but yeah, you were, I, I heard everything. So you were saying basically you have to deduct two positions for roles and um, so somebody's a man. Yeah, basically deduct one position. So I have okay. friends uh, who are founders and who have been in touch with investment managers and they think, oh, this guy has decision competence, like he has decision power, but in fact, you know, he or she is just the one, uh, you know, doing the screening. So that that's something some sometimes disappointing to people talking to Chinese VC firms. Interesting. Okay, that's great to know. Um, and so tell me a little bit about if there's people that are interested in moving to China, like you did, and moving to to you're in Shanghai, correct? Yes, Shanghai. So either moving to Shanghai or moving uh, to China for opportunities. What where do you think the best places to be are in terms of city, in terms of specific, you know? Obviously, you might be biased with uh, being in, in an accelerator, but are there other um, opportunities you see? Like if somebody wanted to say, stay with a large consulting firm and come to China, is that an option? Um, what, are the, what are the options for, for um, people outside of China that want to kind of go there and they see such a big opportunity? Yeah. Um, so geographically, so we can answer in terms of ge geographies and in terms of industries. I think in terms of geographies, it's really just the three tier one cities, Shenzhen, Beijing, and Shanghai, that are interesting most of the times because smaller cities um, are much less international than the big cities. And among those three big cities, it's really Shanghai that's the most international one. So me coming from Shanghai to Beijing, I already feel, wow, that's much more Chinese um, okay. than what I'm used to in Shanghai. Um, and that's something you need to take into account in terms of industry, to be honest, without speaking Chinese, it's super hard. So if you want to join any consulting firm without speaking Chinese, you have two options, either forget about it or you are senior enough. So you have done like three, four, five years at a consulting firm. And then you make a transition and then what happens is they will give you someone who translates for you. And that means your seniority must be high enough and your expertise in a certain area needs to be high enough in order for that to justify them giving you a translator. Mm, that's interesting. So it's pretty rare. You got to be pretty senior, um, pretty valuable. So tell me a little bit about um, specifics um, around. So you said you have to know you have to know Chinese. So basically, 
that's I assume mostly native, if not basically fully fluent, like business fluent at least. Exactly. So it's really uh, you really need to be pretty fluent. Uh, otherwise, uh, especially business Chinese is. A Are whole... you yourself fluent? No, I'm not. Okay, and so, so you're okay because you're dealing with people trying to come in, um, which you the majority speak um, English, I assume. Or... Exactly. So that's that's the loophole, you know. Yeah. One of the one of ten positions you find are positions where it's not really required to speak Chinese, and those are mostly, you know, positions that are outward facing, so communicating with the outside world. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's the case. I mean, for ninety percent of my job, uh, when I talk to the Singaporean government, when I talk to startups in Berlin, and so on, I don't need to speak Chinese. Then, of course, there's these 10% where we talk to the Chinese government, for example, where it would be nice for me to be fluent and speak perfect Chinese. But then again, you know, Patrick, that's a challenge that takes probably yeah. five years to years. master. And are you, are you going to try to master it? What's the plan for you? Are you going to be, be in Shanghai for five years, two years? What, do you have a, a roadmap for yourself at all? Or is it just um, as long as you're seeing good opportunities and the business is doing well, you'll stay? So I have, um, I have a couple of, in, uh, in Germany, you say you have irons in the fire, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So they are hot now and you need to, um, you know, <laughs> do the work, uh, yeah. do the work. And so until these fires, uh, these irons are finished, I, I will not leave. Mm -hmm. mm, that will probably take, you know, I don't know, one, two, three years. Mm -hmm. And, uh, once I'm done with these irons, I can then decide do I see bigger opportunities now with my new background, my new experience outside? So maybe as someone who connects China and the rest of the world from outside of China, which would be possible, or do I see great opportunities within China there and then I'll stay? And that being said, what I do right now is I do practice Chinese every day, mm -hmm. try to get better at it, but I'm also realistic and know that, you know, I have super high um, like I work a lot and uh, some people really dedicate the full day to learning Chinese. So I'm definitely progressing slower than some of my peers. That's fair. So how did you even come up or how did, you know, coming out of consulting, how did you even find this opportunity? And tell me a little bit about how you found yourself in Shanghai. Was it something you were, you were actually seeking or was it something where this opportunity presented itself through your network? And t talk to me a little bit about that because I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, so growing up, my best childhood friend was Chinese. So that was the first time I got in touch with the Chinese culture. I liked it. And once I turned 16, I realized, oh, you know, China actually is also interesting economically. So there is something to do there in terms of business. Mm -hmm. uh, so very early on, I formed the vision that I wanted to do, make a career in China, at least for a couple of years. Because I thought, you know, it's something that I can only that can only have a strong upside. And so um, after, after finishing my consulting uh, years, I thought, okay, so either you do it now or you'll probably do it never because then you grow older. And as you already said, Patrick, you know, you, you start maybe have a, have a girlfriend and all these things start and it gets super difficult to say, hey, you know, let's move to China. <laughs> And so um, for me, I decided to make the move. Uh, how did I do it? 
um, or what would I tell people who try to do it themselves? Um, you really need to go the networking route um, because if you go the official sending an application through the website route, first of all, what you'll find is mostly, you know, like teacher gigs. So you're not going to find a lot of finance jobs that, or, you know, finance consulting, whatever you're aiming for. Um, and secondly, if you find some of these, um, what happens is, you know, these people, they get 50 applications by Chinese people and then they get this one application from you uh, written in English and they will be a bit confused at first, even if it's a position that uh, where you can speak English. So I would say it's much better to, in a country like China, where it's all about networking, all about building those strong bonds um, to approach people personally. How would I do it or how did I do it? I went through uh, LinkedIn. I um, reached out to a lot of people. How um, did you do your filters? Like what were you looking for? Obviously location, but what else were you looking for? You knew you wanted to be in the startup space or no? Yeah, I was purely looking for people in the startup space. Mm -hmm. And I supplemented that with real life offline experience. So I actually did multiple trips to Shanghai. And uh, I remember one trip where I was here for two weeks and every day was full of coffee dates with different potential leads, you know, or business partners. And so, so it's the same, so I, it sounds exactly the same as the U S <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And networking um, is universal. That's the lesson here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, yeah. so just and, building relationships. Yep. Okay. So yes, you came for two weeks and you didn't have a job or you, this is your, on your savings basically. And you're just, yeah, I know that was, that was during the time when I was working at Roland Burger. So I took okay. two weeks holidays and uh, went over. Wow. So that was your holiday just coming in Shanghai and having coffee chats with people all day. Exactly. You, you know? might actually build your empire with that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're, you, you were meeting with people. Tell me what those meetings were like. I think that's pretty interesting. Was it a bunch of people who, um, were in the only people in the startup space were, were like from, from Germany mostly. Was it people from all around Europe from, tell me like who you were getting actually success at actually even scheduling a meeting. Yeah. Um, in general, I would say two types of people. Mm -hmm. Firstly, Germans. Secondly, foreigners in general. So with Germans, of course, it's easy for me coming from Germany, texting them and being like, hey, you know, you did exactly what I also want to do coming from Germany to China. Would be great to exchange some thoughts. And these people immediately get this kind of mentor instinct, you know, wow, I can help this guy. Mm -hmm. and um feel, were, they feel in good like, about, were they in startups and vc funds and that type of stuff mostly mostly that that okay. stuff accelerators startups yeah. innovation companies head of innovation at company x got it okay cool things like that yep um and so that was the one thing and then foreigner versus chinese also here i mean just us being foreigners or being people from the west we have a very uh, or we are we we just bond better with other foreigners mm -hmm. so my success rate with uh, contacting 
uh, foreigners who lived in Shanghai, expats, was much higher than contacting Chinese people. Even though I had, I met some wonderful, you know, a couple of people running big VC funds, Chinese people uh, who were also willing to meet up with me and talk about opportunities. Um, but um, of course, these people then also spoke fluent English. Um, so those, that was the situation. Got it. And so tell me about the, the actual meeting that kind of was your break, your breakthrough. Was that during those two weeks that one of those, so how many, how many meetings did you have per day on average? You say five, three, like three meetings, three meetings per day. And it was across two weeks. So like 15, a little bit more, I guess, but you know, 20. Plus, yeah, it was, it was 20 plus, um, really 20 good. plus meetings, I would say. Um, and funnily enough, so this one, uh, this one networking trip wasn't, wasn't where I found my current, uh, job or my current occupation. Mm -hmm. Um, nevertheless, many of the people I met that time I stayed in touch with. And I also did that, I think one and a half or two years in advance of me making the transition to actually go to Shanghai. So okay. I had the time to build up the relationship and make it a genuine one. But what, what led to my current uh, position is I um, found the founder of Exnode through our alumni system. So he actually was a Roland Berger alumni okay. like 15 or 20 years ago. Then he went into real estate, which is where there's lots of money in China. Mm -hmm. And then he thought about, you know, what, what should I do next instead of retiring? Okay, let me start an innovation company. Um, and it was him who I got in touch with through LinkedIn and he then, uh, agreed to work together. Great. And so did you have, did you meet him in person first, uh, in Shanghai or? Yeah. So, um, uh, we got in touch through LinkedIn and then agreed to have a meeting in Shanghai. And so I, I basically came to Shanghai without having anything. Like I had a couple of leads. Mm -hmm. uh, also some of the people I met during my two weeks networking right. in Shanghai. Yep. Um, but I didn't have any security. I didn't know what's going to happen. And my backup plan actually was to go to Hong Kong. So I knew I had three months of time to find something in Shanghai, to make yep. something happen. And then I figured if that doesn't work, I'll go to Hong Kong and try over there. <laughs> and if that doesn't work, maybe I'll go to Singapore. And um, then if that doesn't work, you know, I'm probably not able is there, to find Is there a reason you wanted Shanghai over Hong Kong? And Hong Kong, probably a little more of a financial hub, right? And then in Shanghai. Yeah, and Hong Kong, and, you know, I, I always had Western. that China vision, right? And yeah. Hong Kong is not really China. It's right. like the people are so different. Um, and I just found Shanghai to be even a bit more exciting. Okay, fair. So you did meet him. Luckily, it worked out. Um, tell me about kind of what you went into that meeting with um, in terms of like perspective, in terms of like what you, did you have a set thing? Like I, I need to get paid this much or anything like that? Or was it more like, hey, I'll work for, for cheap? Was, was, did you have a certain negotiation going in? Did you feel like you had the job lined up or was it more just still, still kind of in the initial phases? Yeah, so I had um, I had two main thoughts. The first one was uh, the salary really 
for me isn't a decision factor because whether I earn 3k, 5k, or 10k per month, this doesn't like this will not get me into a different lifestyle. You know, it's not like I'm going to buy yachts and properties all around the world if I earn 5k more per month. You know, right. um, I'm going to be able to invest a little bit more, and that's nice. But uh, that was never, you know, the driving driving decision factor. The second thing for me was I do want to have the uh, possibility to, based on this job, um, have some exponential um, exponential benefits from it, and uh, ideally monetary benefit. So of course there was the discussion around, you know, what what do we do if new deals turn up? Can I be somehow, um, you know, become a shareholder if we start a new joint venture, which is surprisingly enough something you do rather often here when you make deals with big, for example, real estate, state-owned enterprises and so on. So <clears throat> what are the options for me to then participate in these kind of things? And so those were the two, uh, the two things that guide me and Above that, mm -hmm. to be honest, um, I was playing it cool externally, but internally I was just looking for anything. So mm -hmm. I probably would have, like this was, looking back, this was the perfect, or this is the perfect company for me, the perfect opportunity, and I'm able to take so much responsibility, lead a team, um, start, an, start a VC fund, crazy things. Um, but I probably would have accepted anything when I came here, you know? And are your investors kind of, uh, already lined up or do you guys already have the fund lined up and it's, or is it, is it more like you guys, you guys are providing the expertise and people are paying, are the startups paying you like a consulting fee and then giving you a, a piece of equity to help you grow into China? Yeah. So currently we have two things that we do. The first one, we have done that for a long time before I came, um, is just, we provide a startup acceleration program and startups pay a flat fee. They don't give away any equity. <clears throat> and what we do with this one is, for example, we do it with a lot of governments because startups usually are not able to pay 25K for a startup program. So the governments <clears throat> will pay for the, for the startups. Okay. And um, that is a nice model. But of course, it's not exponential at all. Mm -hmm. And so the second model that um, that actually is my or was my duty coming here to introduce that and take this whole acceleration practice to the next level mm -hmm. is equity. So we started now um, taking equity in selected startups that after landing in China and staying here for two months, find initial traction. And so what we do is we install people who will do operational work on the ground, install them in their teams. Mm -hmm. And for that, we take a certain equity share. Yep. Um, and the second thing is we are in the process of uh, raising, raising an actual fund. That's, um, that's very much my, uh, my goal. Yep. Um, we have been in touch with a number of private equity players who were interested in investing in the fund. We have a lot of corporates who could be LPs potentially, mm -hmm. but as you can imagine, uh, those talks came to a halt um, a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something we're picking up again, and that's 
probably one of the that's one of the irons I talked about to for me to finish that and that will be a great learning experience for sure tell, tell me a little bit about what the climate is like now in Shanghai given that it sounds like things are a little bit more under control with with COVID there um, COVID-19 so tell me a little bit about are things back to normal Are things kind of half normal what's what's going on what could we expect in the U.S. do you think um, um, yeah you've learned there so let's so two things. Let's start on the personal side. Some things that I see personally, and then we can talk a little bit about business. Sure. Uh, so personally, um, it's almost totally back to normal, except for two things. Still, everybody's wearing face masks, so I have mine uh, mm -hmm. lying around here, mm -hmm. and uh, you have temperature controls at all the every building basically, like my home our office, malls, everywhere. Um, except for that, you know, bars are opened again. People go for parties, for drinks. They go to restaurants. Uh, they go to the gym. Um, they are outside having fun. Okay. So in terms of, you know, personal impressions, that's, that's what's going on. In terms of business, um, we still, of course, feel heavy impact. Um, especially cross-border startup acceleration. You can imagine that even if China is back to perfect normal health, like there's nothing going on because you can't have any startups from Germany or from France, Italy, Australia, wherever they come from, uh, coming into China. They just have different problems right now. Yeah. So that's heavily affected. Um, on the other side, we are quite lucky to have this corporate innovation business. So we still are able to sell projects to some corporates, mm -hmm. to some state-owned enterprises. Mm -hmm. um, and that keeps us uh, very much alive. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, also for startup acceleration, we do, as I told you, work together with governments. And these governments right now, even though, yes, they do have uh, other problems now too, due to COVID-19, but... Uh, we still have a couple of well-paying government clients who want to send startups over to China um, or engage in things like, you know, online acceleration programs, virtual expert calls and things like that. So um, overall, to sum it up, um, it's going okay. Could yeah. definitely be better. We're impacted, um, but we're not going to die. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. Um, is, is it been um, a little bit of a, how do you think in terms of the trend, has it been where you said everyone's wearing masks? Are people still wearing masks? I know it's people culturally for, for um, wear masks for pollution usually, right? In certain cities um, anyways. So has that transition um, been more natural? And do you feel like at the bars, are people like taking off their masks and like congregating in small spaces still? And it's not a concern. Um, so at the beginning, it was like people were definitely wearing masks all the time. Even mm -hmm. in restaurants, they tried to wear the mask and just and take eat. them off to put eat. something in, in their mouth. Mm -hmm. um, now it's still people are wearing masks all the time. But for example, if they go to the gym, they will take it off to do their exercises. Yeah. And so now the situation is relaxed a little bit, but uh, Chinese people are, you know, they're 
great executioners. So if you tell them something, they will, uh, they will do it and they will stick to it. And so um, there is um, very high discipline in terms of wearing masks on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I think I do think that's healthy right now because you never know whether there could be you know a second wave or things like that. Yeah. So for now, let's stay cautious. Um, that's what I observe around. Yeah, things are pretty bad here. I think uh, New York especially is getting hit. Um, and I see I see an interesting um, dynamic that, from what I know in Germany, is people are not wearing masks mostly because there's just not enough masks because all of them are being produced in China. And um, so in Germany, it's like, if you wear a mask, it's considered almost rude because you like, you're taking away masks from uh, medical personnel, like yeah. people, doctors, nurses, they need those masks. And why are you wearing the mask? You know, um, yeah. whereas here in China, it's considered rude if you don't wear a mask because um, people actually wear a mask to protect you, you. not themselves, right? Right. And that's something people sometimes get wrong also on a daily basis. Like one year ago when I arrived here, one of my colleagues uh, from my team got sick. So suddenly they turned up in the office wearing a mask. And I'm like, that's strange, you know? Um, but it was actually to protect me from becoming ill. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, this, the, the culturally, it's very different, I think. I think it's going to be hard to get, um, at least in the U.S., it's going to be hard to get wide-scale mask wearing for any period of time. So it'll be interesting to see if we suffer kind of higher rates of, of contagion for longer. Um, I hope I hope not. We've been pretty aggressive, at least here in California, with the social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, things have been locked down for a good three weeks now. Where even even yeah. the play, even the playgrounds are blocked off and <laughs> so we have nowhere to go like with the kids is crazy right now um when they when they block the playgrounds off i'm like okay this is getting this is getting pretty draconian <laughs> but uh yeah i'm hoping like the graphs start looking better um, over the next week or two but um yeah it's been a crazy it's been just surreal it's almost like out of a movie but um and i hope hopefully we can all stay healthy any, any last thoughts before we call it of um, you know, advice you'd give to your younger self or advice you want to give to the younger listeners um, that, um, that you... Um, no, so far I think I'd, I'd, be, I'd be good. We talked about a lot of cool things. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then, um, yeah, I guess in terms of um, where people can find you and why don't you remind the listeners again where they can find you. And I'll link, yeah, to, so, I'll link to it in the show notes as well. Yeah, so uh, people can find me on YouTube and on Instagram and on LinkedIn. So YouTube, it is Management Consulting Insights or simply look for Kevin John, J-O-N. For uh, Instagram, it's the Kevin John, so T-H-E, Kevin, J-O-N. And for LinkedIn, I guess we can just link to it in the the show notes. Perfect. Kevin Johannes Werner, my German real name. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to, to share your story and some, some insight and some wisdom. Yeah, it was super interesting. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Awesome. Thanks, man. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. And until next time. 